0: Romans chapter 4, and we'll read 12 verses today, first 12 verses of Romans 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as grace, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes, in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. You may be seated. We've been looking now for a couple of weeks at this very remarkable fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And we've seen uh, that in this chapter Paul centers his attention Primarily on one man, and that's Abraham. Why does he do that? Well, because there are so many profound and far reaching lessons that can be learned from the case of Abraham concerning justification by faith. So, Paul wants to take a lot of time on Abraham. By the illumination of the Holy Spirit, Paul sees Abraham in a totally different light than in the light in which the Jews saw him. He has a totally different perspective on, on Abraham than the Jews did. And also by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, Paul sees just how important Abraham really was in the total picture, in the total revelation that God had given Uh, The total scheme of things, Abraham was very, very important. So that's why Paul devotes this whole chapter uh, in Romans to the case of Abraham. And he he gives almost a whole chapter in Galatians as well, Galatians chapter 3. And then he also gives part of Galatians chapter 4. So um, Abraham was very strategic in this whole thing. And to understand why, we have to realize... Uh, that the Jews looked at literally everything through the eyes of the law of Moses. They even looked at Abraham through the eyes of the law of Moses. Now you say, well, how could they do that? The law came along hundreds of years after Abraham lived. How could they look at Abraham through the eyes of the law? Well, that's not a problem for a Jew. All he has to do is just... uh, take the uh, the law and transfer it back to Abraham hundreds of years before. And that's actually what they did. They said Abraham kept the law before the law was ever given. And so even Abraham they're looking at through the eyes of the law. They just projected the law backwards a few hundred years and said, well, look, he was a law keeper too. And we read this. A quote from the Jewish literature last week, and let me just read it to you again. They said this, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord. Isn't that amazing? He was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Now the Bible makes it very clear that Abraham was not like that, that he was a sinner just like the rest of us, but that's the view they had. That, had, that was their theology, you see. Now, he was perfect in all his deeds. In other words, the Jews thought that Abraham was the great example and pattern of Torah keeping or law keeping. They looked at him they said, Here he is, he's the great example of law keeping. And because of that they viewed him as the great father of all lawkeepers. Everybody that's a lawkeeper, Abraham is the great father of all lawkeepers. And uh, if you think of the the picture of an umbrella here, here's our pyramid, Abraham's at the top. He's the great example of lawkeeping. And then down under this umbrella, He's the father of all the law keepers that follow in his steps. In other words, all the Jews. They're all the law keepers. Now Paul says, <clears throat> no, you have misunderstood the whole situation entirely. Abraham was not the great example of lawkeepers. He wasn't a great pattern of lawkeeping. After all, the law wasn't given until over 400 years later. He was the great example of, of justification by faith. He was not the great example of justification by law-keeping. He was the great example of justification by faith. The great pattern. And that means that in this this umbrella or this pyramid, you have Abraham as the pattern or example of justification by faith, and then under Abraham you have all believers. Not all law-keepers, all believers. In other words... He's not just the father of one nation, of the Jews. but He's the father of many nations. Anybody that believes, you see? Now that's so simple. But everything's simple once you see it, by the grace of God, you know. And God opened Paul's eyes to go diametrically against everything the Jews were saying. And look at how clear it is. Here's Abraham. How was he saved? 400 or more years before the law was ever given, he was saved. How was he saved? Well, he was saved by faith. And he's the father, you see, of the faithful. Now they tried to get around that little problem, just put the law back there 400 years before it was ever given, and say, well, he kept it even though he didn't have it yet. But Paul said, no, God's teaching something in this whole thing. So Abraham was justified by faith. And the law was something that came in hundreds of years later, and it served a temporary purpose. But the point is that all along, the big thing was faith. And tied in with faith was grace. And tied in with grace was promise. And all those things go together, and all those things are brought up in this chapter. And we'll be looking at these, Lord willing, as we go along. But today, <clears throat> we want to look at verses 9 through 12. In this section, verses 9 through 12, Paul takes up a whole new issue, and that's the issue of circumcision. And you remember, most of you, I think but probably everybody here knows, that circumcision was a big thing, very big thing to the Jews. Um, I think I gave you a quote back when we were studying in chapter 1, to this effect. The Jews said, Our father Abraham sits at the gates of hell and turns away any man who is circumcised. That's how big it was to them. He sits there and turns away, doesn't let any circumcised person enter hell. And uh, so the Jews could have said to Paul, Well, it's true that Abraham lived before the law was ever given. But it's not true that he lived before circumcision. Circumcision was given to our father Abraham. Now that's the big thing, circumcision. That's what they could have said. And um, that's true. Abraham did live at the time of circumcision. Circumcision was given to Abraham. But the question comes up, when was it given to him? And in particular, what part did circumcision play... In his being justified. Now that's the stuff that Paul is going to look at in this section. So let's read verse 9. <clears throat> is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? Now what is this blessing he's talking about? Well the blessing we looked at last week in verses 6 to 8. Um, You remember we dealt with this. Uh, Verse 6, David speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. And verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Verse 8 again, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take in account. Justification is much more than just being pardoned. It's much more than just being forgiven. Justification, to be justified, is to enter into a state of blessedness. It's the very opposite of the curse. Now, condemnation involves a state of cursedness. This is something. You remember Paul says, and quotes from the law, Cursed is every man who continues not in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. So every person that is in any way falling short of perfectly keeping the law is under a curse. Any man that is condemned is under a curse. And so here's condemnation and along with it a curse. Here's the opposite of condemnation, justification, and along with it the blessing. And so there's two possible states and whenever you're justified, you move out from being under the curse and you move into a state of blessedness. Now, what a thing this is. To be in a state of blessedness. To know that no matter what happens to you, the worst possible things imaginable that can happen to you. And I don't know what that would be. I know uh, when I read that book on Johnny Erickson's life, where she here she is a young girl, dives into the water, breaks her neck, and becomes a quadriplegic just like that. And after reading that book, the big thing that I came away with, the big thing I came away with was nothing can touch a Christian. I mean, you you triumph by the grace of God. In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. If you're a Christian, you have every reason to live even if you lose your arms and legs. You see, because why? Because you're in a state of blessedness. And when you think of her life in particular, now it's easy for us to do this from a distance. But when you think of her life, the way God has blessed her, you see, because He really does cause all things to work together for good to those who love God. Because they're in a state of blessedness. They're under the blessing of God. And so when you look at her life, you see, look at how God has turned this tragedy into great blessedness in her life. We wouldn't even know who she is, apart from the fact of that tragedy that happened. And her life has been used in countless other lives for countless blessings. Now, you say, well, I don't want my life to be used for God's glory. I want to live for myself. Well, you're not a Christian. But if you're a Christian, you want your life to be lived for the glory of God. And it's a blessed thing. I mean, it's even more blessed to give than to receive. And so that's part of the blessedness, you see, of a Christian. Giving out. So what... What a blessed thing to belong to God no matter how bad the circumstances to know that his smile is upon me that he loves me that I'm special to him and that he will turn heaven and earth to bring blessing to me and to protect me it says the Bible says he'll keep us like the pupil of his eye I don't like somebody poking around on the pupil of my eye I get very defensive think of what think of what what it's saying about how God looks out for His children. That's a blessed state that we enter into. Justification is much more than God saying, well, I forgive you for what you've done up till now. This is what Dick was saying on this thing of surrendering and the terms of peace. Much more than saying, I'll forgive you for what you've done up to now. Now you're on your own. Now try to please me. But instead of that, He actually justifies us. And puts us and adopts us as his children and, and puts us in a state of great blessedness. Here's Balaam. Now, this is talking about the Old Testament people of God who knew nothing of the. I mean, they knew blessedness in the sense of externals. We know blessedness in the ultimate, eternal, spiritual sense. But here's Balaam trying to curse the people of God, and every time he'd been paid to curse them. And he got up there and tried to curse, and every time the stuff that came out of his mouth was the exact opposite. He said, and what did he say finally? He said, How how can I curse the ones whom the Lord has blessed? It just won't work. No curse will rest on the people of God, the true people of God, because they're in a state of blessedness. Well, then Paul asks a question. He says, Is this blessedness? just for circumcised people or is it for uncircumcised people too? Now you know what a Jew would have said? They said it's only for the circumcised. That's really what they believed. And even those who professed faith in Christ had a hard time laying this down. You remember? Let me give you an example. This is from the book of Acts. Acts 15.1 says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Isn't that exactly what Paul says here? Can you, be, can you be in this blessed state without being circumcised? He said, no. This blessedness is for the circumcision only. That was their answer that they were given. And you remember all the trouble that Paul had with the Judaizers in Galatia. Uh, they were trying to get people to be circumcised. And he says, I testify to you if, you, if you get circumcised, you're under obligation to keep the whole law. And you've moved out of the realm of grace and back into the realm of law. In Galatians six twelve and 13, he says, Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. But they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. So this, this was not an idle question for a Jew. And again, we, can, we just cannot imagine how big this thing was and, and how deeply ingrained it was. You've got to remember, it took a revelation, a vision from heaven, To get the Apostle Peter to set foot in the house of a Gentile, Cornelius. Even though he was a God-fearing man, he would not go there. wouldn't set foot in his house. This is after Calvary. And he has a revelation to go there to visit Cornelius. So this was a big thing. Well, back to verse 9. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. Now here Paul again quotes this extremely important verse from Genesis 15 verse 6. He's already quoted it back in verse 3. And he's going to actually quote it again at the end of the chapter down in verse 22. So three times in one chapter he quotes this verse. Uh, It was an extremely important verse. the Apostle Paul and should be to all of us. Why was it so important? I want to give you some reasons here. First of all, that verse, Genesis 15 verse 6, was the first direct mention of faith in the Bible. First direct mention of faith in the Bible. Now, uh, we know that faith was around a long time before Abraham. In fact, in, in Hebrews 11, it talks about examples of faith By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So right back, you know, in the first children, you see faith being exercised. The only way anybody's ever been saved is through faith. And so we know that faith was there, but this is the first direct mention of faith in the Bible. Now, why would God do that? He waits all these hundreds of years. Why would he he not mention this more? Well, I think the reason is is that he's wanting to show that Abraham is a pattern. He's the father of a multitude that are going to follow in the steps of the way Abraham was saved. So this verse is important because it's the first mention of faith in the Bible. Secondly, faith is mentioned in this verse. Now, do you all have it in your mind? Genesis 15. Maybe we ought to turn to it so you'll have it right there. Because otherwise we... In our heads, we're thinking of something else. Genesis 15. Genesis 15 and verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord. Faith is founded in the Word of God. We're going to talk about that. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So this is the first mention of faith in the Bible. But secondly, faith is mentioned in this verse in the context of justification. How does a man become right in the sight of God? Now that's exactly what Paul's talking about. Justification by faith. And that's what this verse has to do with. Thirdly, in this verse, justification is tied in with imputation. (laughs) How big is this? Reckoning. Remember last week, we looked at this word impute. To count, or to reckon, or to impute. All the same word. And right here in this verse, which talks about faith, and talks about justification, right in that verse... Justification is tied in with imputation. And back in Romans 4, you remember Paul says, righteousness, where is it, verse 6, God imputes or reckons righteousness to the man who believes. He reckons or imputes righteousness in justification. So, when you become a Christian, when you're justified in the sight of God, the way that happens is, God imputes or lays to your account some righteousness in the eyes of His law that you don't, you haven't earned yourself. Christ has earned it. And that's imputed or put on your account and you're treated as if you had earned it. Merit in the eyes of God's law. And what else does he say in Romans 4? In, in verse 8 he says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account or literally impute. So when you become a Christian, when you're justified, God imputes righteousness to you, but He doesn't impute sin to you. Well, how can He not impute your sins to you? Well, because He imputed them to Christ. He put them on His account and treated Him as if He owed that debt, even though He didn't. So you see, this whole idea of justification has to do with an imputation, a laying of my sins on somebody that didn't commit them, and a placing of his righteousness and his merit on somebody who didn't earn it. And so think of how important. Now, this is not chance that God worded it this way, you see. Think of this. When God's writing the Bible, he waits clear until the time of Abraham to talk, to specifically mention faith. And when he does it, it's in the context of justification. And when he does talk about faith and justification through faith, he does it in the context of imputation. see how much stuff is involved in this one verse. It's an amazing thing. But fourthly, this verse has to do with Abraham. We've talked about that a little bit. The father of the whole Jewish nation. So what example could be better for Paul to bring up than the case of Abraham? Um, and then finally, fifthly, this verse has to do not just with faith in general, but specifically with Abraham's faith in the word of God related to the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah. And that's the very same way that we are justified by faith. That's what saving faith is. Well, actually back to Romans four, actually there's even more than this, but these are enough right now to show how strategic this verse is, how important it is. Faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. Okay, verse 10. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? In other words, Paul asks another question. And the question is, when was Abraham justified by faith? When was faith reckoned to him for righteousness? Was it before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised? And then he gives the answer. Verse 10, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Now, question. How does he come up with that? What's the proof of that? You have any ideas, Cody? What's the proof? What? I mean, you don't just say. You know, He says, Abraham was justified by faith. His faith was reckoned as righteousness. How? How was it reckoned when he was circumcised or when he was uncircumcised? Well, he says when he was uncircumcised. Who's to say that? Anybody? So. Alright, Brandon says he hadn't received circumcision yet. Well, how do you know that? Well, you've got to go back and read the Old Testament. That's the only way you can figure it out. But let's turn back there. Keep your place again in Romans 4. If you go back to Genesis 15, in this passage that talks about Abraham being justified by faith, Genesis 15 and verse 6, he believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. At this point, Ishmael hadn't even been born yet. And uh, in chapter 16, you have the whole account of Ishmael. In verse 16 of chapter 16, the last verse of that chapter, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So it had to have been at least nine months before chapter 16, back in chapter 15. But uh, anyway, he was 86 at this point. Then verse 1 of chapter 17. Now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, and it goes on, and you go down through here, and you get down to verse 24. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Abraham was circumcised when he was 99. So the events of chapter 15 had to be at least 14 years before he was circumcised. He had to be justified at least 14 years before he was circumcised. Now, 14 years is a long time. You've got to realize that to a Jew, an uncircumcised man, I mean, that look at Goliath, for example. David says, how long are you going to put up with this uncircumcised Philistine? Uncircumcised people were despised. Now here's Abraham walking around as an uncircumcised man for 14 years at least with the blessedness of God resting upon him justified completely. It's not just like a day or two. We're talking a long time. And the fact is when you read uh, in Acts and also in Hebrews in the New Testament, it seems clear that he was actually justified a long time before that. It says in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was still in Mesopotamia. That's when God first appeared to him. And in Hebrews 11 verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So, From all indications, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees. He was called, and by faith he went out. You see, he's justified clear back there. Long time before this, even. And what's said in Genesis 15 just reiterates the reality of what was true in his life. But be that as it may, even if you don't accept that, you still have to say, well, he was at least justified for 14 years before he was circumcised. Now, that's simply an irrefutable argument on Paul's part. If Abraham was justified long before he was circumcised, his circumcision could not have had anything to do with his justification. It could not possibly have played any part in his justification. Now, next thing. What must circumcision be if it didn't play any part in his justification? What must it be? Well, it must be some kind of a sign, some kind of a symbol. You see, And that's the very next thing that Paul says. Verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision. Now, next question. What is a sign? Well, a sign is something that points to or represents some other truth or something else <clears throat> in our mind. A sign... Signifies something to us, except we pronounce it a little differently. It signifies, but it, it's right in the word. A sign signifies something else to us. And God specifically tells us in the Bible that a lot of these actions that He had people to do were intended as signs, they were intended to signify something. Let me give you some examples Genesis 9, <clears throat> 12 to 13. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. So the rainbow is one of the signs. That's a very large sign. That's one that God did. And every time we see the rainbow, it signifies to us this covenant that he made with Noah that he would never again destroy the whole earth by water. Genesis 17.11, God specifically says that circumcision was a sign of his covenant with Abraham. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Exodus 12.13, And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood I'll pass over you. Remember whenever the death angel came in? He says, the blood shall be for a sign to you. What a sign. What a reminder. The blood of that lamb, like this, the blood of that lamb, is a reminder to me of God's covenant not to kill the firstborn in our houses like He did in all the houses that didn't have the blood. Uh, God's talking here about signs. I'm trying to give a feel for what a sign is. Now, whenever... Jesus did signs and wonders, you see. You see the meaning of the term? It's not just doesn't just mean miracle. It's not just another word for miracle. Those were signs. When He fed 5,000 with these five loaves and two fish, that was a sign. I'm the bread of life, you see. So, as we go back and look at the word sign in the Old Testament, you get a feel for it. Again, the Sabbath was a sign. Uh, given as a sign of the Old Covenant. Exodus thirty-one thirteen. But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who sets you apart. You see, the Sabbath was a sign of God's covenant with Old Testament Israel. Never did anybody ever go to other nations and reprove them for not keeping the Sabbath. That was a sign between God and His people in the Old Covenant. Uh, Here's just one more. After the children of Israel crossed the Jordan, you remember, they went back, the priests were standing out in the middle uh, with the ark, and the Jordan River had stopped, and he said, go back out there and get some stones out of the middle. He sent one man from each tribe. And they got the stones and brought them out and set them there in a pile. And he says this, he says this, let this be a sign among you. So that when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Now, beloved, can you see this? God gives signs. And that's what baptism and the Lord's Supper are. When your children ask you, say so, Why do you dunk that person under the water? What's that all about? Now, the amazing thing is our kids grow up around this. And uh, it's the grace of God when a light comes on and they say, what in the world is this about? I mean, you get used to it, but this is a crazy thing. Go Go out to the lake and stick somebody under the water? It doesn't make any sense. Why do you do that? Well, you say, this is what that means. That's a picture of burial and resurrection, and that's a picture of washing and so on. Or they say, why do you take this bread and this juice and drink it? Well, that's a picture of the body and blood of Christ. Those are signs. Very clear. Now, do you see how wrong this idea is that's taught by the church of Christ, by the so-called Christian church a lot of times, that baptism is essential for washing away your sins. It's the very same thing exactly that Paul's talking about in relation to circumcision. Very same thing. Baptism is a sign. It's a symbol. It's supposed to say something to us. And to prove that, all you have to do is ask the same question that Paul asked. In the New Testament, how were people justified? Was it before baptism or after baptism? See, you can ask the very same question. Let me give you some examples. Here's a publican in the the temple crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Remember what Jesus said? This man went down to his house justified. Before baptism, totally unrelated to baptism. Here's a woman uh, in Luke 7. Washing the Lord's feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair. And this is what he says to her. He said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See that? Same thing as Abraham exactly. Your faith, your sins have been forgiven. Your faith is saved. Here's the thief on the cross. Today you shall be with me in paradise. Nothing to do with baptism. He never was baptized. Well, you say that's before Calvary. Okay, well, here's Ananias in Acts chapter 9 coming into Saul and he says, Brother Saul, that right there gets you into problems. Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you, he sent me to pray for you that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Before he was baptized, you see. All right, one more. Here's Cornelius and his household, all filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues and glorifying God. And Peter says, Who can forbid water that they should be baptized now that they've received the Holy Spirit the same way we did? Which came first? Acts chapter 15, Peter commenting on this, he says, God who knows the heart bore witness to them. giving them the Holy Spirit just as He also did to us, and He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith before baptism. So you see, the same method works to make these things clear. Now back to circumcision, and one more thing before we try to gather this all up. Paul says that circumcision was a sign, but what else does he say? Verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. Now, it was a sign of circumcision. The question is, what did it signify? He received the sign of circumcision. What did circumcision signify? I just want to give a little bit on this. We get a partial answer in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11. In him you were also circumcised, in Christ you were also circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So he says. This is an invisible thing. This is an eternal thing, a spiritual thing. What did circumcision signify? Well, it signified the excision or cutting away of the old life that takes place in regeneration. Uh, Christians are no longer in the flesh, but they're in the spirit. So something what was happening every time those Jewish babies were circumcised, there was a sign being given of something painful happening and a cutting away of the flesh. And Paul says in Colossians 2, he says, that's what's happened to you, spiritually speaking, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What happens when you become a Christian, there is a break made with the old life. And you are severed and cut off from it and it's cut away from you. And you are no longer in that realm anymore. If you're, if you're a Christian... You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. The the source of your life is no longer the flesh. The source of your life is the Holy Spirit, and that's the realm that you live in. All right. He says here then, verse 11 He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. What else is circumcision? It's not just a sign, but it's a seal. Now, I was going to go on to that today, but I'm not going to because it's going to be too much. But Lord willing, next time we'll go on to this matter of what a seal is and how circumcision is a seal. And then sum up Paul's argument in verse 12. Um, Sorry to cut you off like that, but I can see that when we get into... What a seal is, it's going to be too much. Um, anything to share? Any questions here? Maybe we can do that. Since we have a little more time than we would have had. Are you able to follow the flow? Thus far here. Well, Lord willing, next time we'll take up this matter of the seal. And um, you need to be thinking about what a seal is in the Bible terms. To seal something, it's not talking about licking an envelope and closing it up. The seal in the Bible was something very specific. You have cases where kings put their seal on a letter and that kind of thing. So, Lord willing, we'll look at that next time. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank You for revealing these very simple but very profound things to the Apostle Paul Concerning Abraham, that he was, it was not uh, just chance that Abraham came 430 years before the law. It wasn't just chance that he was justified before he was circumcised. It wasn't chance that you, the first mention of faith, had to do with justification and imputation and had to do with the promise of the coming Messiah. Lord, we thank you for these amazing things that you did in ordering all this and not only um, for the sake of what happened then but very applicable in our day uh, when we think in terms of the basic way of salvation that it is not through anything that man does but it's through what Christ has done and we pray that you'd make these things clear we thank you for the fact that what Dick shared that uh, When we surrender, we have the most gracious terms of peace imaginable. And uh, that we actually enter in not just to a state of being brought back to the zero point, but we enter into a state of blessedness and adoption as sons. Thank you for all these things. Help us to understand this uh, epistle of Paul to the Romans. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's be dismissed and we.